Well, you see on the stage that, uh, and we've talked about it some, if gathering was this weekend, ladies gathered, and uh, man, what an awesome experience. Uh, I got a chance to just catch a little bit of it, but one of the things that, uh, that really moved me as I was listening to the conclusion is Jenny Allen, who is kind of the impetus behind it. God's used her in a great way to move women all over the world towards a greater sense of discipleship and following Christ. She made the statement, she said, you know, that the church is where life change happens. And what she meant by that wasn't necessarily just a church service. She's talking about the body of Christ, that God designed us, God designed the church, God put together the body of Christ so that people could gather together to worship, yes, corporately, but also to be connected to one another so that they could be moved, moved away from things, some things that, uh, that they need to move away from, and move towards things that uh, God is putting in their life. And um, man, it was just powerful, uh, Vicki telling stories about the movement in people's lives, grateful for what God has done. And so, um, man, I'm excited. Uh, we're really looking forward to that. And, you know, I asked if, uh, it was kind of funny, Vicki came home Thursday night from the, uh, from the decoration party or the get ready party, and she was telling me, she said, there's this really cool if uh, monument. I don't know how to describe it. And she said, it's, it's got PVC pipe and, um, and there's balloons stuffed inside of it. And I said, well, so how, how big around is the PVC pipe? And she said, oh, I, I don't know, two, three inches. And so most of the night I'm trying to figure out how in the world were they stuffing these big balloons into two to three inch pipe? And now I, I see this, right? Isn't that great? And, uh, and then taking a, kind of just taking a, uh, a cue from the women, guys, because we, we normally are motivated in some way or another. We're, I'm thinking, maybe you guys can help me with this. We'll, we'll have a men's retreat in the fall, and we'll call it fee. <laughs> Whatever. Let's go to Daniel, shall we? <laughs> yeah, that, Jesse's over there shaking his head, and I'm saying, you're right. That was a bad one. That was... Yeah, let's not talk that way anymore. Anyway, it's great, great to have you here. Great, uh, if you're with us for the first time, we're really glad that you're here and getting a chance to experience who Christ is and what, what he's doing in the world. And that's, uh, that's really, we want to speak the power and the good of Christ over people. And uh, man, the name of Jesus, that's, that's what this is about. You know, when you think about speaking good over somebody, uh, yeah, that's, a, that, that's the word for eulogy. And uh, a eulogy at a funeral is that. You, you speak good over somebody. And the assumption when you're speaking good at a, over somebody in a eulogy is that they've lived a life that is actually worth kind of eulogizing, right? It's been my privilege over the last few weeks to get an opportunity to hear two sons eulogize their dads. And uh, my nephew and Steve Tanner last week. And to, to, to the funny thing about those, two, two very different people, two very different ages, two very different things that were going on in their lives, but commitment, faithfulness, love, security, those kinds of words were the words that I heard these guys speak in the name of their dads. Powerful, powerful. And, uh, and men who deserved a eulogy. You know, as I, as I read through the book of Daniel, his, his life, this book really kind of reads like a eulogy, his own personal eulogy. 
Because Daniel's life was, in fact, a eulogy in the crafting. Everything about who he was, everything about what he did, everything about what he believed was setting the course for, for him to be looked to, to be learned from, to be inspired by. And man, I hope that's what you get today from the book of Daniel. Daniel is, a, is another character, another stalwart character in the story of God. And it's interesting, you know, God in general, I mean, certainly there are passages about um, kind of a, a more logical argument kind of thing. It's more like a class or more like an outline. But, you know, for the most part, the Bible is a story. And God tells us a story because he wants us to do more than just have some information or some fact. Um, I've been reading a book called Eat This Book. It's by Eugene Peterson. It talks about how you read spiritual literature. And, uh, and the, the title actually comes from Revelation chapter 10. In Revelation chapter 10, John's told that he's supposed to eat this scroll. And when you first eat it, it'll be really sweet. But when you digest it, it becomes a little bit discomforting and disconcerting because it pushes you and pulls you into things that are so contrary to your nature. And what Eugene Peterson says is that in a story, God calls it a story or, or tells it in story format, not because he wants us to have information, but because he wants us, he wants to invite us to live in the story, to live connected to the story, not just, not just find some information about, about some God of the universe, not just have the ability to answer a bunch of questions from a theological perspective, but to actually experience what humanity and who humanity is. I mean, you know what humanity is. You know who humanity is. You are one of humanity. But so was Daniel, and so was every other character. And so as we read these verses today, as we, as we retell this story about Daniel's life, know this, Daniel was like you. Daniel was like me. Daniel was struggling for a lot of different kinds of issues and a lot of different kinds of pains. And in the midst of that, his relationship with God rose to the surface of all that. And we get to experience this great story of Daniel so Daniel, I mean, just a little bit of context. Have you ever watched a movie where you're watching the movie and, and somewhere in the middle of the movie, you think to yourself, who is that? You know, like, where did that character come from? I, I thought she was married to that guy or, or I thought he was the one who did the bad. I, I'm confused. And that can be the case if you read the book of Daniel because Daniel starts right after Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, goes in and destroys Jerusalem and brings the Jews into Babylon in exile. It was a movement of God that God was doing to discipline the Jews. But about midway through the book of Daniel, all of a sudden, the king who was leading is no longer named Nebuchadnezzar, and he's no longer from Babylon. He's now Darius the Persian, the Mede. And, uh, and in the middle of this book, there's this massive kingdom shakeup, and Darius and the Persian Empire take over from Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And we pick up the story right in the middle of that, right after Darius has become the king. And, uh, and it's this particular situation that Darius brings forth, this whole process of Daniel becoming once again a, a high leader in the government. Look at verse 1. 
It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, that's just administrators, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, or think governors, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because of an excellent spirit within him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So here's this guy named Daniel who had already risen to the upper echelon of governmental leadership under Nebuchadnezzar, and now he was doing the same thing under the next ruler. And why? Well, very specifically, it's because, it says in verse 3, he had an excellent spirit within him. Now, what might that be, an excellent spirit? It's, it, it isn't in what we might think right off the bat. It's not the Holy Spirit of God. It's not even um, the spirit like in the sense of who you are as a being. It's actually more like your character. It's like the center point of kind of the way you operate, the, maybe the operating system of how you engage with the world, maybe the reference point for the way in which you engage and interact with people around you and situations. That's your character. And, and what Daniel was, was excellent above all else in character, central in terms of following a, a commitment first to God, but also to the authority that God had put him under. So he brought commitment and resolve, you see, in chapter 1 of Daniel. He brought wisdom and prudence, you see, in chapter 2. And here we're going to see he brought this passion for his relationship with God. And all of these things, all of this spirit stuff, all this character stuff was putting him head and shoulders over the people who were around him. Now, just like in any other series, period of time, when one person gets risen above everybody else, what happens? Those who get left behind get envious. They get jealous, and they want to do things to take the place of the one who's been raised. And that's what happened. Look at verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. If somebody was looking to try to tear you down at work, for example, would they be able to say, I can find nothing wrong with the way they operate in character. I'm going to have to attack their religion. That's what happened here. There was, nothing, there was nothing in his character. There was nothing in his performance. There was nothing in the way he operated that they could actually criticize. But they knew something, that his faith would eventually rise to the surface. And that if they could create some situation where faith and obedience to the king came into conflict, then they would have their moment. They would be able to win the day and get the position that they hoped for from Daniel. And so that's what they did. Look at verse 6. These high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions. Now, O king. 
establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And therefore, King Darius signed the injunction. Now, you know what's interesting here? The Persians were uh, followers of an ancient monastic. That means a one-God religion. Uh, an ancient monastic religion called Zoroastrianism. And, and Zoroastrianism is still around today. In fact, uh, it, it's, it's had adherents like Darius and all of his people, but also Freddie Mercury from Queen was a Zoroastrian, right? So it's, you know, it's the whole spectrum of people and history. And the thing about this Zoroastrianism is that it, it, it being a monotheistic religion, it was different than most of the religions that the Israelites had interacted with in the past. Because most of the religions the Israelites had interacted with were related to some form of idol worship and a kind of a pantheon of gods, or at least a good mixture of gods. And so it wasn't just one god. And, uh, and people, kings and, and leaders and rulers would, would claim to be God all the time, but not in this particular situation. There was one god, according to Darius's religion. And yet, Darius determined that he would take the place of God. It's, it's strange to me that someone who was faithful to a, monastic, or to a monotheistic God or monotheistic religion would feel like it would be appropriate to become the God. And yet, in many ways, don't all of us long for that day when we could be our own God, where actually we could be other people's God, I mean, where we could actually have people expressing praise and worship and honor to us in a public way on a regular basis. It wouldn't be so bad. It would be good. It would be attractive. It would be, man, it would be exciting if you were in that kind of position. So it's not so far-fetched that a man like Darius, who, who was already serving a monotheistic religion, but also already kind of in tune with who Daniel was to still give way to this decree, and he did. And then in verse 10, what happens? Daniel, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so Daniel was fully aware of what had taken place. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber upon, uh, opened toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done Previously. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. The, this bold, grace-filled, because it was a gracious act in a sense. It was not done in some sort of performance way. It wasn't done to draw attention necessarily to himself. It was done just in a, a grace-filled, bold, and authentic way. It was, it was what he'd been doing. It's exactly what Daniel had been doing the whole time that he'd been in the Persian Empire. Now, I just want to remind you of a really important distinction here. Daniel wasn't so much defying the king as he was engaging with his God. Daniel was not opening those curtains, kneeling down, and calling out to the God of the universe so that he could somehow make some sort of defense for God or that he could somehow uh, defend God's honor or stand against the tyranny of Darius. 
This was not a moment of civil disobedience, really, even though it was. This was not a stand to say, we're going to overthrow Darius and the Medes because they're, they're not giving us religious freedom. I mean, this was a moment where Daniel was engaging with his God. He was engaging in his relationship with his God. The necessity of him having a conversation, having a connection, having a, a, a foundation with his God through communicating with him was why he was praying. Daniel did not make this statement to say that the Medes and the Persians were necessarily, even though he thought they were wrong, even though the Medes and the Persians who were there worshiping somebody other than the Lord God were wrong, he was making a statement that his relationship with God is the most vital thing that could be happening in that moment. In the moment when everything was about to fall apart, in the moment where he was going to be facing death because of this engagement, he needed to call out to a God. This was not a moment of defiance. It was a moment of necessity for a man whose life was based on abiding with the God of the universe. This is how you get to this place. Daniel didn't do this just because he had read some information about the law. Daniel didn't just do this because the book says you shouldn't bow down to another God. Daniel did this because he had a vital, living, active relationship with God and believed that calling out to him in this moment was the most necessary thing that he could possibly do. And so that's what he did. Now, of course, I mean, that came with massive consequences. Look at verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before God. And they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction. This is verse 12. O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then, you I mean, just stop for a minute. I can only imagine that these guys had great smiles on their face, or at least maybe not on their face, but in their minds, they've got Daniel now, right? One of us is going to be the leader. One of us is going to get to do this. One of us is going to take his place because he is in the dust. Now, they said, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now, we're going to come back to verses 14 and 15, or at least the concept in verses 14 and 15 in a minute, but I just want to skip ahead to what happened. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king, keep this in mind, the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his Lord, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Now, Daniel, stuck in the lion's den, not just stuck, put there by the king because he broke this rule. Now, as you can already kind of guess, Darius was, man, he was hesitant to do it. 
He was fearful about doing. He was apprehensive about putting his highest claimed leader in that place, most trusted, maybe even close friend who was going to go in that den. And, and, and yet, um, he did it because it was a demand of the kings, of the Mer, uh, Medes and Persians. But now, look at verses, starting in verse 21. Uh, the next morning, the king goes to find out what happens. And he calls out, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver, to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel, in verse 21, said to the king, O king, live forever. May God, my, my God has sent his angels and shut the mouths of the lions, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Here was this moment where God's faithfulness and God's power was working together with Daniel's, man, his commitment, his resolve, his, his engagement, his, his passion for God, the power of God working together in conjunction with humanity to say, here is somebody who lives for me. Here is somebody who believes me. And, and here I am going to rescue this person. Man, what a, what a powerful story that that is. What a powerful part of Daniel's eulogy that he would be, man, bold enough and faithful enough to stand in the face of death, just like he had numerous times throughout the book of Daniel. And if you go back, you'd read this eulogy of the great things Daniel did, and you would be encouraged, I'm sure. But I want to tell you, I'm not positive that that's really the message that God's trying to get to us today. I think the message comes in the response given by Darius to the experience that he had with Daniel. There was something about the way Daniel lived his life, the boldness, the faith, the commitment, the relationship that he had with God that moved Daniel that moved Darius to something super and significant. Look again at what Darius says in the end. Look at verse 25. After all this takes place, then King Darius, he wrote to all the people, the nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heavens and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion's den. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Here's what here's what. Daniel's life taught Darius three things. And my question to all of us is, do our lives teach the same three things to the people that we come in contact with? Look at the first thing that Daniel's life taught Darius, that the God that Daniel served was a living God. He was a living God. I mean, very different than the God that Darius served, this God of the Zoroastrians by the name of Mazda, basically all he did was when you died, you came before him 
and you had to defend your case between the good you did and the bad you did. And if you did more good, Mazda came in and said you get to go to heaven. And if the bad you did outweighed the good that you did, then Mazda said you end up in hell. I mean, isn't every false religion basically the same thing? It's, you, your future is completely tied to what you've done, good or bad. You know, if you've done more good things than you have bad things, then you're good. If you, but if you've not been able to measure out your bad with good, then you're dust. And Mazda was just handing out edicts that way, handing out judgments that way. Mazda, as the king of, I mean, as the god of the Persian king, never engaged personally, never interacted. I mean, Darius never had an experience with a living God, never had an experience with some God who was actually pouring life into somebody, who was actually providing meaning and hope and significance and reality for somebody. My question to you is, as you live your life among the people that God's put you near, where you live, where you work, and where you play, does anybody know that the God that you serve is a living God? Has God actually engaged in you in any way that they see that significance and purpose and meaning actually come from God and not in what we accomplish? Is there anything about the way you live and love and engage with people that makes them think there's something about him that's alive? There's something about what he talks about or what she says that is actually alive, that there's meaning and purpose that's more than the world that's around us. I mean, does, does anybody recognize that you have an interaction and a relationship with a God who's actually alive, who's not just a, a story in a book, who's not just a stone that we bow down to, who's not just a concept but actually, not only has he made life and given life, but he actually is life. Darius learned from Daniel that God is living. He's not dead. The second thing he learned from Darius is that, that God's going to last forever. God's eternal. Look again at verse 26, that his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never come to an end. I mean, everything about the God that Daniel served was forever. I mean, there's no thwarting of his plan. There's no stopping of his kingdom. There's no end to it. And Daniel, by his life, taught Darius that there was a future. There was an eternity. Is anybody looking at your life and seeing that there's something more than what is around us, the here and now? Is anybody looking at your life in the, in the way you use your money, in the way you use your time, in the things you think about, in the way you handle your relationships? Is, is anybody seeing anything more than you living for this moment? See, Daniel taught Darius through his life that there was more than the right now. There was a future. There was an eternity. There was a kingdom that was bigger than my plan for my life. Finally, Daniel taught maybe the greatest lesson, that God wasn't out to condemn. God wasn't out to destroy. 
God was actually out to rescue his people. Verse 27, Darius proclaims to the entire world that what I've seen in the life of Daniel is a God that delivers and rescues and works signs and wonders and delivers people from the most powerful evils out there. He saved Daniel from the lion's den, reached in, closed the mouth of those lions. And what he's done for us is even more significant, powerful, and miraculous. He has reached into the place we find ourselves, in this den of sin that is actually and completely leading us to a certain death. And he shuts the mouth of that with the death and resurrection of his son. Darius, this pagan god, proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ even though it yet wasn't established that God is rescuing us. Does anybody you live near, does anybody you work with, does, any, does anybody you hang out with See your life and proclaim or think or ponder even or wonder if God really does rescue his people. Has your relationship with Christ produced a transformation in you that makes people see that God wants to take them from their darkness and despair and their hurt and their frustration and deliver them to this new place of freedom and joy and peace and security. Yeah, I mean, Daniel's life, an amazing life that was a, a kind of a weaving together of his faithfulness and his passion with God's miraculous power. I mean, to, to read the book of Daniel is to see things happen that are just outstanding. I mean, it could be a movie that would be a blockbuster in terms of the things that happen, but when you really boil it down to the essence of what God was trying to accomplish in Daniel's life, you see he was just doing the same thing he wants to do in your life. He, he's, Daniel was living the same life that he wants you to live. He wants you to live in such a way. <laughs> he wants you to live in such a way that people see that he's living, alive, active, engaged, interested, passionate about you. He wants you to proclaim by who you are the belief that God's kingdom is eternal and everything else will rust. And he wants you to know fully and completely that he desires to rescue those who are lost. And he wants to engage us in it. Lord, thank you for this man, Daniel. The only way this happens isn't from just a cursory or a academic reading of your word. It is an abiding, faithful, empowered life. And I pray, God, that all of us in this room who know Jesus as our Savior would 
turn to the Holy Spirit, allow the Word of God to do work in us, to be, I'm not, to live in the story Daniel wrote, in a sense, to be Daniel. Not to keep rules and regulations, but to have lives that are seriously transformed so that the story continues in us. So then the story can continue in somebody else. Lord, I pray that would be the case. Thank you for your love for us, for your rescue in our lives. We praise you and we worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?